Uh, it's my pleasure to <clears throat> introduce some of you may not have met uh, Scott. He is our pastoral intern, came to us last summer, a student just finishing his first year at Westminster Seminary and pursuing uh, ordination, pursuing the desire to be a pastor and, and or missionary someday. And so he's going to share the word with us today. Thanks. Good morning, Crossroads. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? Great. I'm glad. So the sermon text for this week is from Psalm 66. So if you all will turn with me in the scriptures to Psalm 66. A little background introductory information about this psalm. We don't actually know who wrote it. And we also don't know when it was written nor the occasion for which it was written. And commentators are largely divided. Some insist that it is a psalm of thanksgiving that probably would have been used at the temple for worship. Others still think maybe it's a song of King Hezekiah after Israel was able to repel and defeat the Assyrian siege on Jerusalem. People like Charles Spurgeon believe that it's a Psalm of David for no other reason except why not? There's no evidence that it's not a Psalm of David. Some also speculate that perhaps it's during the time of the return from the exile in Babylon or perhaps a Psalm from Nehemiah at the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And a few contrarian scholars seem to think that it was a psalm written in a time of defeat or great tribulation where the enemies of Israel were closing in around them on all sides. And I think it's very providential that we don't actually know the context to which this psalm was written because what that means is no matter what context the church finds itself in today, it's an equally applicable psalm for teaching and instruction. And with that being said, I think in 2023, in the month of June of all times, pride, as it's known in our culture, I think interpreting this psalm through the lens of warfare and the church being surrounded by enemies on all sides is a wonderful application. When we think about the enemies of the church in the present age, it doesn't take long to think. On the one hand, you have woke liberals pushing radical sexualization in every facet of our society. On the other side, far-right nationalism is driving people into things like white supremacy and dividing groups. Our culture is largely divided on issues of race, economic class and there's not a lot of unity when you ask the question what does it mean to be a patriotic American and the enemies of the church are all around also for the soul with rampant use of pornography over 80% of most American men access it on a weekly basis the statistics now saying one in every two women doing the same and the average age of exposure, now dipping in some studies below the age of 10 years old, 
It's a PSA for the parents. You should be widely aware of your children's online footprint and activity. In addition to that, the enemies of God are everywhere. Yesterday I saw a video of a protest that was taking place in Franklin, Tennessee. It's a suburb of Nashville, not far from where I'm from. And there was a group of Christian protesters praying on the sidewalk in the midst of a pride parade that was taking place. And upon invoking the name of God, they were pulled out of line and arrested by the local police. Everywhere we turn, the church is facing more and more persecution by the day. And it's not just external, but internal also. Right now, the United Methodist Church is in the midst of great trial and controversy. They're in the midst of a split in the denomination. And our own denomination, just a few years ago, had to get very specific on how we understand a biblical sexuality and the qualifications for leadership in Christ's church. And it's with all of that being said in context that I would like to read Psalm 66 to you now. So if you will go with me to the text, you'll notice the psalm is divided up into four key sections with the word Selah splitting them. What I'm going to do is as I read, I'm going to take a meditationary pause when I encounter that word as it probably would have been done when it would be performed in worship in Israel. Psalm 66. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you. You and sing praises to you. And they shall sing praises to your name. Selah. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doings toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. Selah. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. 
Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. It's been the reading of God's word. Thanks be unto God for his word. Please join me in prayer. Most high heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to ascend to the pulpit. Pray, Lord, that you would enable me to steward your word well with the posture that it deserves. Pray, Lord, that anything that would be beneficial and helpful for the feeding and encouragement of your people, Lord, that it would take root. And anything that is not beneficial or contrary to your truths of your word, Lord, they would pass in one ear and out the other. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together peacefully today. So many Christians around the world are doing so in secret. We pray earnestly, Lord, for our nation and for our leaders. Lord, that you would grant them wisdom. And Lord, that they would turn to you in repentance. And we ask it all in Jesus' good and holy name. Reveal yourself to us in your word today, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I have three main points for you. You'll notice in the bulletin, uh, I didn't get my notes in fast enough. So I'm sorry, you'll have to go without the, the word search and different, different things that you're used to. But a few main points for you. And the first point is this. It's titled, A Prophetic Word. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be looking primarily for this first point at the first opening four verses. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. And as I was reading that and consulting the commentaries and listening to some different sermons, I I found myself asking the question, what does it mean to make praise to God glorious? Why does it need to be glorious? I think the psalmist does a wonderful job of answering the question, but before we get to that, What does it mean to not worship God in glorious fashion? And once again, I would like to turn your attention to our culture, or maybe even your own experiences in life. We glorify a lot in our culture. If you're in the Deep South, we really like to glorify war and combat and traditional masculinity and those things. More so in the North, you tend to see a glorification of of the individual of sexual freedom and liberation, um, terms like equity and equality. And recently, you might have noticed that Taylor Swift went on another big tour. Tickets were selling for thousands of dollars, and there was even some lawsuits put out against Ticketmaster because of how they subjectively sold their tickets to the general population. It's very interesting that in our culture we like to glorify things that are pleasing to us. So much so that you see a shift in culture from objective truth to my truth, to a subjective reality, to the use of things like preferred pronouns, because it's not enough for me to live in the world where I'm not accepted as I 
wish to be accepted. But the reality is, is that when we turn our eyes to ourselves or to our culture or to anything else outside of God, our praise ceases to be glorious to God because it is no longer directed from God to God. And so what does it mean to have glorious praise given to God? Well, the psalmist tells us, sing out the honor of his name. Verse 2. Glorious praise to God is first and foremost praise to God for who he is. And who is God? Well, we know God is one. Trinity, three persons. One substance. We know that God is love. We know that God is justice. We know that God is righteous. And we worship God because of who he is. Something you'll see in a lot of different religions around the world is they do things to worship God because of what he demands. And yet the God of Israel is worshipped not because he doesn't make demands, but he is worshipped because of who he is, because he is worthy of worship, because he is the creator of all and the sustainer of all. Another point of what makes praise glorious to God Verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. We also praise God because of what he's done. And for the people of Israel and for the context of this psalm, we see he invokes the imagery of the Exodus. And what has to be understood is that for Israel and even for modern-day Judaism, the exodus is of the level of significance of the resurrection to the Church of Christ today. God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of bondage and servitude and slavery, of the mass murder of their children, of the forced labor, sexual exploitation, and all the things that go with the wickedness of man. God delivers his people out of bondage. And that is what the psalmist invokes here. And as we go through and think, it seems very fitting and applicable that this would be a message to hear during a time of war. You see, Psalm 66 isn't against glory. On the contrary, it's all about how you direct glory. And when we allow our worship to be properly directed and informed by who God is, and we allow it to be informed with the works that God has done, it becomes evident that at the very least, God is to be feared and revered because he's a God of great power. And as we see this moving into the next point, we come down to verse 5 the second break in the meditation of the psalm. And we see the psalmist change tune, and he says, come and see the works of God. It's an interesting statement when you give a comparison to how Israel was operating throughout much of its history, even much of its history today. Those of you that don't know, I just got back from Israel last week. It was an amazing 
opportunity and a wonderful study tour. Um, you'll remember a few months back when our church was going through collectively the book of Jonah and kind of the heart that Jonah had for the nations. He did not want to go to Nineveh. He did not want to teach the people to repent. He didn't want to call out their wicked deeds. Instead, Jonah wanted to see judgment. So much so that even after he went through and made the proclamation of God, he goes outside of the city and he sits down to enjoy the impending judgment that God mercifully spares the city. This is not the way it's supposed to be with the church. The church has always been public. And the message of the church should always be that of come and see. We find ourselves in our culture being very individualistic. Everyone has their own phone. Probably every single one of us has our phone password protected with a password that only we or maybe a couple of other people know. We like to be private. Our culture is exclusive. You think of Philadelphia fandom, all right? Can't support the Steelers. This is a bird's town, amen? We're exclusive in other ways too. Throughout the history of the United States, white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, and even today now, you have colleges and universities at the highest level offering exclusive African-American-only graduations. We're a very exclusive culture. Think of the way that wealth prevents people from accessing education or health care, or even how we set up toll roads that are paid for with tax dollars, and yet only those who can afford the tolls can drive on them. <clears throat> Our culture is not one of a come and see, but rather, if you can afford it, you can do what you want. Our culture is private and exclusive, but the church isn't supposed to be that. Did you know that a Gallup poll taken in February of this year found that between one in five and one in four American adults, when asked the question, were you lonely yesterday, answered yes over and over and over again. And much of our culture has lost its sense of community, and I think one of the ways that the church is called to be different from the culture, and we sung it in that last song, if we're alone, we die. So what does it mean to have a come and see culture? Well, first, I think it starts with a public face. The church doesn't exist to hide the glory of God. Instead, it exists to proclaim the glory of God from the local onto the nations. Also, the church should have community because no man is an island. And if we're alone, we die. And not only that, but the church should also be working in the local community and I think Crossroads does a great job of that with the different programs we offer the community, like the ESL classes, doing things like evangelism explosion. But one thing I would challenge is, are we spending enough time together? Are we serving one another well? Are we serving each other's families well with our time? 
Are we presenting a community and a way of life and existence that is different from the world around us? I sincerely wonder if Gallup did a poll for just this church, how many of you would respond if you were asked, were you lonely yesterday? Crossroads, the church is a family. And when you look to your left and to your right, and up in the balcony or down below, in the body of Christ, these are your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and fathers. But so many times here in the United States, the church fails to act like a family. And it it is to the detriment of the ministry of the word and a detriment to the people of God. To have a come and see church, it means inclusivity. I've already talked about how our culture is exclusive, but what does it mean to have godly inclusivity? Well, first it means, like Paul said in Romans, God shows no partiality. And what that means is whether someone is rich or poor or black or white or Asian or any other ethnic breakdown, they are welcome in this space because they are made in the image of God. Because they have an innate dignity as a human being bearing God's image. The church should be inclusive. It means people who struggle with learning disabilities. It means people who struggle with physical disabilities. And it means people who are poor and who need help. The Church of Christ is not bound by nation. It is not bound by citizenship. It is bound by Christ. And furthermore, how can you have an effective come and see church if we are not unified? Here in the United States, our culture is not unified. In every election cycle, I know you guys are excited. We have, a, we have another one coming up. Not too far. If you're from where I'm from, the news pundits will tell you every election cycle, this is a battle for the soul of America. It's a must win. Irreparable harm will come if our person loses. And, you know, as I've expanded my taste in media outlets, I realize the other side does the same thing. This will be the time they bring out the handmaid's tale. You know, they're going to kick women out of the workforce. Or as current President Biden said, you know, if Mitt Romney wins, he's going to put you guys back in chains. What a horrible thing to say. The United States is divided, but the Church of Christ is supposed to stand in opposition to division because we are unified in the person of Christ. Because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. There's no longer male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. We are united to the person of Christ, and it is the person of Christ that calls us to himself. Every man will give an account. And the Church of Christ should present a unified stance against a culture 
of exclusivity and division. And the Church of Christ should have a peace that is reflected to the rest of the world. How you live your life in the public should be a come and see mentality. In the words of Jesus, they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. As we continue to move through, I would like to introduce my second point for those of you taking notes. The second point will be called the testing of God. We're now going to turn our attention down to the next stanza. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. It's an interesting thing to think. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here we have the psalmist saying, God has tested us. So what does that mean? And I, I think a lot of people in the church today have a misunderstanding of what the scriptures mean when they say testing. It's not a test like you would take in school. It's not God bringing opportunities to sin into your life with the attempt to trip you up and be like, ha, you don't really love me. Instead, the psalmist gives us extra context to understand what he means. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. He's speaking contextually of a metalworking process here. He's using an example for how God works. And so, in seeing that, I did a little digging. <clears throat> the process for smelting silver, and gold, and other precious metals is something you have to practice at for a long time. It requires great specialization. And when you think about it, you wouldn't want an amateur accountant handling your money, would you? It's a very crucial job. It's a very delicate job. And so what they would be doing during this time is they would be building very concentrated, very specific style furnaces that would allow them to achieve just the right temperature of heat to separate the silver from the other metals attached to it. And you had to be skilled with how you regulated the heat. Because if the furnace was too hot, as the other metals would be burned away, it would take pieces of the silver with it. And so you would lose what you were trying to attain. But if it was too cold, you would fail to fully separate the metals from one another. And you'd be left with impurities in the silver. And that wouldn't be an accurate weight. 
And so the process of refining silver would be done over and over and over again in some historic accounts up to seven times to ensure the purity of the metal that was going to be extracted. And when you consider that as the context, for you, O oh God, have tested us. What this psalm does is challenging because what it does is it rebukes the prosperity gospel narrative that is so prevalent in our culture. A lot of people come to church and they have this idea that it's just all riches, all comfortable blessing. When we hear the word blessing, we immediately let our minds go to comfort. We let our minds go to good times. That's not what the psalmist does, and that's not how the scriptures treat the term blessing. Verse 11, you brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You caused men to ride over our heads. The psalmist is ascribing the persecutions to the people of Israel, and I think we can rightly today to the church, as an act of God. But what do we do with that? It's a dangerous thing when you start thinking in these ways. Because it means God is sovereign. And God is in control over your life. But whether or not your heart is attuned to God is the difference between whether or not that is a comfort to you or a curse. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out into rich fulfillment. This is a really significant part in this verse, because if those of you have your Bibles on you and you want to confirm this, you can turn to Numbers 31, verse 23, and you'll see that fire and water is actually the means that God gave his people of Israel to purify the spoils of war. So the psalmist is comparing these trials. In fact, he's insisting that these trials are the very means through which God purifies his people and separates the sin out of their hearts, leaving only pure, precious silver or pure, precious, glorious worship unto God. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. Selah. See, the Israelites were limited during their time to this come and see philosophy because the works of God were being put on full display in events like the Exodus. And God traveled and led his people out of Israel, a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. 
And yet, even the people of God, as they are refined through the trials that God has ordained for them, as God is uniting his people to them himself, they still have to bring a sacrifice to make petition to God. This is one of the beautiful things about being in the New Testament time. Church, Christ is that sacrifice for you. You can go to God in prayer in Christ at any time because if you are in Christ, the righteousness of Christ has covered you. We no longer have to bring bulls and rams before God to enter into prayer. We have direct access to the Father through Christ. And I think there's another point here. Seeing the works of God is not enough to have your heart united to God. Because if we look back at the opening verses, specifically verse 3, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. But this isn't a heartfelt submission. This is a force. I think of Pharaoh in the times of the Exodus where he gives Moses a verbal agreement that yes, yes, I'm going to let the people go, but his heart is hardened. His heart is not in submission to God and goes back on his words. It is only when the sheer unrelenting force of the God of Israel is poured out upon the land of Egypt and upon Pharaoh and his house that then he submits. But his heart was never changed toward God. And much like we see through much of the stories of the Bible, we see that Israel's heart is not really changed toward God either because it's always a cycle of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. And we get to the New Testament and they receive the Messiah that has been prophesied for hundreds if not thousands of years and they crucify him. The heart of Israel is not yet united to God. I think that's a significant point because in verse 16, the psalmist changes tune. And it's no longer a come and see mentality, but join me in the word. Verse 16, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my power. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. We're no longer in a come and see church. Now we're at a come and hear if you're on the same page as me, I'm thinking of places in the New Testament like when Paul says in Romans 10 verse 14, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And if you skip down a little bit into verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Christ, we have the full fulfillment of the law. 
And in Christ, we not only have seeing of God, but we have the hearing of God. Because what does Jesus do during his time on earth, during his earthly ministry? He is teaching. He is in the synagogues. He is public. And he is proclaiming the words of his Father who is in heaven. You know, I was reading about a month ago. I believe it was an NBC headline. It said, Gen Z is leaving the church. And it cited some disturbing statistics that said anywhere from 51 to 56% of Gen Z has an active distrust of organized religion. And only 18% say they actually trust it. And that's not necessarily a poll that is wholly specific to the church, but it's certainly reflected within it. And it makes me think, what are we missing? I think we're missing a few things. First, we've talked about how to be a come and see church, but how do we become a come and hear church? And I'm just going to tell you, parents, it starts at home with you. Train your children up in the way that they should go. And in their old age, they will not depart from it. Home discipleship has really become a lost art in our culture. And more and more, as screens infiltrate the home, what has to be understood is the culture is coming with that. When I was growing up, cell phones weren't really a thing, or at least smartphones were not. I didn't have my first cell phone until I was 14, and it was a flip phone. When I was 17, I got that really cool slide-up keyboard. I actually wish those would make a comeback. I thought they were great. And it wasn't until I was a senior in high school that I was able to finally get the ever-coveted iPhone. But nowadays, there are screens everywhere. So much so that social media is now on the forefront of issues that Congress is trying to sort out and deal with, deciding whether or not to regulate, to put age restrictions on it. It's creating a mental health crisis that is disproportionately targeting and hurting young girls, especially teenagers. And in the midst of all this, much of it is completely unmonitored. And parents, I don't say that to scare you. I say that to make you aware of the fact that the culture is making war against your family right now. Satan is making war against your family right now. So many marriages are caused to fail because of the sabotage of Satan and pornography and finding our entertainment outside of the family unit and allowing screens and TV and cultures to raise the family. This is not the way it should be. So how do we have a come in here church? Well, it starts with parents taking on the burden of home discipleship. And it starts with parents 
having devotionals with the family. The Word of God, we see from Paul, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Parents, if you're not in the Word, and if you are not preaching the Word to your children, I promise the culture will be preaching things you don't want there. If you leave a void, the culture is going to fill that void. And there's a void in all of us that can only be filled by the Scriptures, that can only be filled by the Word of God, that can only be filled by Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so firstly, I think we become a come in here when we take family discipleship seriously. Secondly, you've got to be a church. You've got to be involved. No man is an island. If we are alone, we die. The church has to step up and act like a family. We have to treat one another as family. We have to be defensive and guard our community, not in a militant way like the culture thinks, but in the ways of righteousness and of right thinking that are based and bound to the scriptures. If we're going to be a come and hear church, we have to bear witness to our neighbors. We have to be active participants in the community. We can't be ashamed or afraid to speak out our faith. And that doesn't mean we have to get angry. That doesn't mean we have to get hateful or aggressive. That's not what that means at all. In fact, if this is the truth, and I, I do believe wholeheartedly that it is, and if you do, there's nothing loving about staying silent. Sin is ruining our culture and people's lives and families. The church can't afford to be silent. Jesus was not silent. He went to the cross and took it. Are we to be better than Christ, our Savior, our Lord? If we've shared in his resurrection, church, as Paul says, we will share in his death. And so we think about this theme of war and enemies on all sides. And it's really easy to become overwhelmed. And the only key to not being overwhelmed is to not put your eyes on the culture. And it's not to put your eyes on yourself. It's to keep your eyes fixed to the person of Christ. Probably the second coolest You'll have to talk to me after service if you want to hear the first. Probably the second coolest thing that happened to me during my time in Israel is I learned that the gates of hell is a place. So when you find yourself, let me make sure I get the scripture right. Matthew 16. And the scriptures in the Gospel of Matthew in the chapter 16 where, where Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you because it's on this rock that I'm going to build my church. And what does he say? He says, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And so on day three of my time in Israel last week, I find myself in Caesarea Philippi, and it was a New Testament city governed by one of Herod's sons, Herod Philip, hence the Philippi in the name. 
and it's located right at the base of Mount Hermon. And this place was notorious as a place of idol worship. And so right at the base, right at the back of the town, shielded by large mountains, it would have been a very protected, fortified area, there are the remains of a temple to the god of greed, Pan. And within this temple, if you can think of it, it happened there. All of the wickedness that you can imagine happened there. And as Jesus finds himself in Caesarea Philippi, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I also got to see some excavated ruins of city gates while I was in Israel. I always thought of that as like, the evil one is coming to attack me. The evil one is coming after me. The gates of hell is the sending place for the armies and legions of demons. But something really cool that I learned is that the city gate was a communal center for the city. The market would be situated right outside. There would be meeting rooms built into it for the city and town elders. And all of the defensive weapons would be stored right there in the gate. Church, the gates of hell will not prevail because Jesus has ransacked it. It's not a defensive message about the church being on defense against the culture. It's not a defensive message about the church being on the defensive against the enemies of God. It's an offensive promise that Jesus Christ will beat down the gates of hell and the gospel will prevail and God will be victorious. It's an offensive message. So how do we fight? We know we're at war, but how do we fight? If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm just going to be reading a few verses here, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This isn't a war with guns and knives. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words... We're fighting against Satan. We're fighting against sin. Not only external, but internal. We're fighting against our own sin. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with preparation of the gospel of peace. How blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. 
Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with prayers of supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Church, that's how we're to fight. And if you're not spending time in the Word of God, if you are not ingesting it, if you are not proclaiming it, not only to your families, but to one another, And if you're not learning how to preach to yourself from the word of God, then you will find yourself woefully unequipped for the challenges that are to come. But rest assured, the gates of hell will not prevail. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we praise you for who you are, for the great and glorious works that you have done. Thank you that in Christ, we no longer must bring a sacrifice to please you, that you gave what we never could. And thank you that in Christ, you never turn away our prayers or withhold your mercy from us. We ask that you Preserve and grow your church to every tongue and tribe as you have promised to do and to guard us from the evil one. Lord, would we be a church that lives and breathes in you so that we might, as the psalmists proclaim, to come and see and to come and hear. And Lord, that we would be able to confess on our personal testimony, Lord, that we cried to you with our mouth that we extolled you with our tongue, but Lord, you have heard us. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. In the glorious name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. amen.